Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our review of posts from the blog site for February and other news and other stuff. Simon, how are you? I know you've been struck down by the dreaded virus recently. Hopefully you're recovering. Yeah, I was actually. I was a bit disappointed about that. I thought we'd um, put that behind us, but clearly we have not. There's still plenty of COVID out there. In fact, I went to a, a 30 year, 30 year, Ian, 30 year medical school reunion last week. And then about five days later, I got unwell. But there was hugging, which is not normally my thing. But uh, there you go. I'm surprised you're not a hugger. You're not a hugger at all. I mean, I did have COVID about four weeks ago, rather disappointingly, during annual leave. And you may say, well, why did you do a test, Ian, if you weren't due to be at work? It was to prove to my children I was actually ill and they needed to give me a bit of a break during their holidays. We should mention St. Emlyn's Wild, Simon. How are preparations going? I know you're knee deep in all of that. Yeah, really well, actually. Got a a great programme putting together. We've got a fantastic In the Mountains Day, which will be great. And lots of other things going on, as you know. It's it's more like a festival, to be honest, isn't it? It's three days worth of of learning activity, regrouping, re-energising ourselves back into the love for emergency medicine, pre-hospital care, critical care, all of the kind of stuff that we really enjoy here on the St. Emelands. So really looking forward to it. Yeah, early bird rates are out at the moment. So if you want to get a ticket, get one now. If you want to get it at the lower rate, it's good. I think we're going to have a great time. We're doing programme and speaker announcements all the time. So keep an eye on the socials as well as the blog site. And you'll see some of the people who are joining us. There's already some amazing people, uh, people from the ATAC group. We've got Ross Fisher, who's doing some stuff about presentation stuff uh, and, and a few of the familiar St. Emlyn's faces, as well as some new ones, too, which will be fabulous. Simon, I had a nice moment the other day. I was at a social event and I bumped into an old colleague called Claire Richards. She was a registrar with me in St. George's in, you say, 30 years. This was in 2002. So, yes, we are both getting old. But I just want to say hi to her because she said that she listens to the podcast and how much she enjoys it. Claire, thank you for listening. It is much appreciated. Let's get on with some evidence-based medicine, Simon, and start off with a journal club post from February. Keep on blocking in the free world. This is about Remy Fentanyl versus neuromuscular blockade for rapid sequence intubation or induction. This is a post by Dan Horner looking at a non-inferiority trial comparing Remy Fentanyl versus neuromuscular blockade. And I have to admit, I was a little surprised this was even being tried, as Dan points out. Yeah, it's really interesting to to think about a trial where they were looking at a neuromuscular blocking agent versus remifentanil. Because when I started off, you know, an RSI was just two drugs. It was thiopentone and so Everything else was a modified RSI or weird. So when you're trying to intubate somebody, muscle paralysis and, and ease of getting the tube in and overcoming the muscles of the neck and the mouth and all those kind of areas, you think the neuromuscular blocking agent would be your go-to drug. No, apparently there are people out there who are using things like remifentanil, which is a very potent drug, which does produce um, a degree of muscle, loss of muscle tone, etc. And, you know, I didn't know about this. I don't know anybody else who's using it in emergency medicine or pre-hospital. It was a really interesting look at because you, can, you might have a great idea, relatively widely adopted, without that much evidence. We should say that this trial was done in the theatre environment by anaesthetic teams rather than in the recess room or pre-hospital environment, which we are probably more concerned with. This was a non-inferiority trial, so they, they weren't really looking to prove that remifentanil was better just that it wasn't any different. The thing that really struck me, I have to say, Simon, was what they describe as their first pass success rate. It was incredibly low (laughs) compared to what we would accept. I mean, they did include lots and lots of self-reported stuff about sats falling and other stuff. And and most of the first pass success was not about getting the tube in. They also looked at oxygen saturations. They looked at hemodynamic instability. But yeah, in these groups, both groups, whether that was remifentanil or neuromuscular blockade, we're talking about 20% of patients had an episode of what they describe as major hemodynamic instability, a prolonged arrhythmia greater than 30 seconds, and 
or cardiac arrest. And I have that's the bit that I was really surprised at. Yeah, it's, it's, it wouldn't look good on our audits. 1,150 patients across Europe, as you said, that the in, inpatient um, theatre-type um, patients, they either got a neuromuscular blocking agent, either sucks or rock, or they got remifentanil. First-pass success rates for neuromuscular blockers was 716 and first-pass success rate for the remifentanil was 66%. Although, yes, Simon, uh, the first-pass success we often concentrate on is getting the tube through the cords, isn't it? And they did okay on that, about 90%. They really described these other things too, which perhaps we maybe should pay more attention to, where they talk about major complications uh, and be less obsessed about the getting the tube through the hole and more about the other stuff around well, I think it. it's a very good point, and it is those other aspects around hemodynamic um, stability, desaturation, which we know that in a a lot of conditions that we deal with, you know, things like head injury, are actually uh, quite closely associated with outcome. So what will you take away from this trial, Simon? Are you going to be switching to remifentanil tomorrow? I think that's quite unlikely. A couple of things I'll take away from this trial. The first is it was set up in a non-inferiority trial. And we talked about these a lot on the on the podcast. But it's really important when you do a non-inferiority trial that you, you truly do what non-inferior means. And for something as important as this, a 7% difference or a 6% or a 5% difference, and considering that to be not inferior, I think is, is still quite large margins. And in fact, if they'd have done this trial, Dan's done the analysis quite nicely. If they'd done this trial as a superiority trial, they would have pretty much conclusively demonstrated just a difference about 6.1% and the confidence intervals done across zero. So this trial actually, if it was on a superiority trial, would clearly show that remifentanil is inferior. It's not just that they haven't found it to be non-inferior, it is inferior in this group of patients, in this setting, with this group of people doing it. And this is one of those reasons why we keep banging on about making sure you've got your critical appraisal skills up to date so that when you look at these papers, and please do, don't just believe us, do go back and have a look at the paper. You're able to have a look with a critical eye. Ken Milne, our friend over in Canada, the Skeptic's Guide, we're always talking about making sure you read the, the evidence, not just the abstract, so that you can get to the very meat of what's being talked about. And that leads me on rather nicely, Simon, to just mention the return of the cans, the critical appraisal nuggets. Readers of the blog and listeners to the podcast, you will have heard uh, a rebirth of the cans led by Professor Rick Boddy. He's just done critical appraisal nugget nine about semi-structured interviews. And there'll be many more of these coming. He's got a hugely enthusiastic academic team up there in Manchester who are really keen to bring us more stuff about critical appraisal. And there are old episodes available on the blog site and the podcast feed. Just search them out using that word, can, C-A-N, and you will be able to find them. Simon, there was just the one other post during February, and this was about the future of evidence-based medicine. We've had a lot of talk in the St. Emlyn's group about artificial intelligence, a thing I have to say I'm not quite up to date with, but you've been doing a lot with it. This is about using... Now, tell me more about it. Start. Imagine I'm an idiot and I don't know anything. The paper in Nature Medicine is really interesting. So, And it, it comes on the back of a lot of what we've been talking about over really over the COVID years, because... Pre-COVID, we had a fairly sort of well-established model about how we create evidence. So we do have a hierarchy of, of trials, you know, so you know, observational stuff, case control studies, case series at the bottom, then moving up through cohort trials, control trials, randomized control trials, meta-analysis, right at the top of the evidence pyramid, so to speak. That was okay for many, many years, but it's, it's pretty laborious. It's quite bureaucratic. It's often quite discriminatory. So the people who go into the trials are often the people you can put into the trials. So it excludes a lot of people like children, pregnancy, prisoners, you know, all those kind of things, or anybody who's a little bit weird with their disease or who's got more than one disease at the same time gets excluded from the trials. The traditional model 
great though it is, and you know, big exponent of evidence-based medicine and RCTs as we are, it does have its problems. And what this paper did is looked at where we are now. And think about what happened over COVID when we had the platform trials like uh, Recovery and Remap Cap, which suddenly changed the way that we thought about how we do trials. And we have this concept that you know, pretty much everybody with a disease would have some way of in getting themselves included in the evidence. And that's what this is about. So you've still got the, the sort of hierarchy, the, the pyramid of evidence. But underneath that, now that we've got much better data, we've got big data in terms of electronic health records, we've got real world data that we can collect. So you might do your trial that says that drug A is better than drug B, but then you can follow that data through electronic records, find out whether actually when you put it into practice, does that actually reflect what happens? And you know, we've got loads of evidence out there that when you take the results from a trial and put it into real clinical practice, you don't always get what you expect. The future is, for our perspective, and there's lots more things in the, in the article about you know, drug development, which will accelerate as well. But it's about us, it's about how we can translate what we do in very closely controlled clinical trials, put that into the world, find out whether it's actually happening, and then potentially actually use things like the electronic health record to do some of the, the hard work around before and after the control trials to see what the future holds. So it's really quite exciting, actually. And you've been obviously using the chat GPT. This is a whole mystery to me. How did you get to use it? Where did that come from? So there's a lot of talk about it in academic circles at the moment um, for, for good reasons. I, this can help you be a better academic and also bad reasons in that people are getting artificial intelligence language engines, which chat GPT is, to write their essays for them. But, you know, it's getting picked up on the plagiarism checkers now. There's a whole world out there of artificial intelligence, which is just starting to become public accessible. And chat GPT is one of the first, although there are several others around, so that we can actually help help you potentially do things like write an essay plan or find some um, evidence or provide counter argument. Next month in, in March, we've got a couple of blogs out there where we've been using the ChatGPT, particularly Stefan Brun's article, which just show how interesting it could be in the future. You know, if you're looking for your next QI project and you want to sort of put a program against it, then you could actually use things like this to actually create a model. Yeah, I won't do the work for you, but it can make you have much better structure. And I think that's a positive thing. Basically, the future of academic work, writing and stuff is going to dramatically change in the next five to 10 years. It's a really interesting time as, you know, that's a good thing, I think. And wouldn't it be lovely if we could take some of these artificial intelligences and use them to help streamline services in hospital as well? Always strikes me that we somewhat lag behind with technology when it comes to healthcare, don't we? But there must be multiple applications where we could stop doctors, nurses, clinicians having to write stuff down and actually use stuff like this. Do you think that's a possibility? Oh, absolutely. And and again, if you're looking commercially, you'll find lots of different apps, lots of organisation and how um, they can use artificial intelligence engines to organise your day and things. So I can see those sort of things coming. Oh, yeah, it's an interesting time. Let's see where we are in 10 years time. But we still have humans writing many, many of our blog posts. So don't fear, we're not going to turn completely into robots. There will still be an element of personality. Oh, this strikes me these computers can have, well, let's be honest, more personality than, than some of us. But it, it's a good time and an exciting time. Simon, that's it for February. That's it. But let's just spend a couple of minutes. You're the dean. I thought I could take this opportunity to ask you how that's going, being the College of Emergency Medicine dean. We talked for 10 years when you had, you know, some responsibility now, but you're the big dog now. How is it? 
and part of a, a really quite quite a big team now, actually, running um, all the aspects of the academic work of the college. <laughs> Some incredibly clever people, both in the college and also volunteers such as myself, who do the work for the college, but we're not paid. It's really interesting. And there's a lot of things going on at the moment. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming in the next um, few years, which will be challenging. Um, and we're revising how we run the exams because, you know, we've had problems. Um, we're revising how the change to the curriculum are coming in. And that's, you know, it's, there's a lot of work. But it's really interesting work. And it's really important work because it is the future of our specialty is how we train, how we support, how we examine, how we benchmark our trainees as they come through and support them, most of all. And this is a time where we're really trying as best we can to hear the voices of our colleagues, whether they're new to the profession or very experienced. What is it that you want to hear from listeners of the St. Emily's podcast that can take this work forward? Any ideas about what it is that we can do to help you do what you're doing? Yeah, I don't think I'd um, dictate to them what sort of particular areas we're interested in. I think we're interested in what they're interested in. That's a really bad answer to your question, I know. But genuinely speaking, one of the the risks that we always have with any centralised organisation is you don't get to know what it's like on the ground. I know what it's like in Manchester because I work there. I don't really know what it's like in, in Southampton, but I get the information from you. The more we talk, the more we learn, the more we listen, the more we'll know. Simon, it's a joy as ever. The, the public will not know how many little gremlins we've had trying to record this podcast but we've made it through we've struggled on and we've done it it's been a joy chatting to you we'll see you again soon no doubt and uh, keep recovering from your little virus and to all of you out there it's a tricky time at the moment we seem to say that every month but uh, keep doing what you're doing keep looking to care for your patients and do take care